One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast is brought to you by the supporters of patreon.com forward slash Dan And if you enjoy this podcast, you should consider becoming a supporter of patreon.com forward slash Dan This will not be the last time you hear the phrase patreon.com forward slash Dan in this podcast. Enjoy! Hello. Welcome back. It's January. January. I said I'd be back in January. I know I took a couple more weeks off than I said I would. Or did I even say it to you? I might have said it to myself and never actually said it to you. But hello, welcome back. This is Falling Forward episode 27 with me, your host. Yes, yes, I am your host, uh, Dan Lassac. How are you doing? You, you can respond, guys. You know, you don't leave me hanging. Let's try that again. How are you doing? Come on, that's just, that's just rude. It's just rude of you not to respond. Um, I'm doing well. I've got a bit of a sore shoulder, but that's a thing that happens. Uh, apparently it's bad posture. I ended up going to the doctors. It was like two weeks of, of horrible pain and weird crunchiness when I move it around. But yeah, apparently bad posture. Uh... Stand up straight with your shoulders back and all that. So yeah, that's that's my life now. How's your life? Still no response, okay. I don't know what I've done to offend you listeners, but I can take it. That's life. Who have we got on the episode this week, Dan? Uh, thanks, Dan, for, for talking to me. Um, it is Dr. Susie Gage. And the timing of this is almost like we planned it. She had a book out on Friday, that's just a few days ago, called Say Why to Drugs. And if uh, if that name's familiar, that's because she also has the Say Why to Drugs podcast on, on the Distraction Pieces network. What network's that, Dan? That's the network I'm on. This is like an inter-network collab crossover thing. Yeah, I know, it's very exciting. Anyway, I refuse to babble incoherently for another intro. That's uh, New Year's resolution number one. Less incoherent babbling, even though I am technically incoherently babbling as I say this, but it's a work in progress, guys. (laughs) Come on. But yes, go buy Susie's book. It's available in, like, physical form, in paper form, from, like, foils and um, the 
water stones, I think. And borders. Is borders still a thing? I think borders is probably still a thing. Uh, you can get it at those places or the probably the um, Amazon, not the rainforest, the the online store. Um, and it's there's an audiobook as well, which there's a bit of me that thinks that maybe that's the best way to go. I don't know what the profit split on an audiobook is though, so do the one that gives Susie the most money. Uh, but um, like, because she is a podcaster, she actually knows how to talk. Uh, I've heard her. I've heard her talk on her podcast and in person in this um, podcast. How many times can we say podcast? Yes, definitely babbling incoherently now. We, we are there. But yeah, go do that uh, and then listen to this and go, oh, that was an informative conversation between two people. Oh, and, oh, yeah, oh, yay. Patreons, thank you. We passed 50. We passed the 50 Patreons. That's the most Patreons we've ever had. And um, that might not sound a lot to some of you out there, some of you cynics, but 50 people chucking a dollar my way for a thing, this podcast, that's free, is kind of crazy. Like, I worry for them. But I also take their money and spend it on pizza and travel. Travel to the podcast. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and I think that's it. Hmm. Yeah. No, let's just go ahead and uh, have a listen to me and Dr. Susie Gage chatting about stuff, things, and other stuff. Enjoy. The music on this podcast can be found at danlesack.bandcamp.com. And if you were to purchase some of the ambient twerks or trip-hop bangers from danlesack.bandcamp.com, you'd be directly supporting this podcast. Enjoy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Go for I it. it. I pressed that. Look at you in your, your snack corner as yeah. well. Yeah, well, snacks that I'm not going to buy because they're probably obscenely expensive. Oh, very expensive. <laughs> so we're in a hotel, listeners, uh, and we're looking at the moment if we wanted a chocolate bar, uh, a Snickers, that's £2. <laughs> £2 for a Snickers. Oh, a spirit, some sort of alcoholic beverage, £8.50. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because I was going to put my sushi in the fridge, but um, it's, I don't think the fridge is on, so it didn't feel cold when <laughs> I opened the door. Maybe you have to pay so. for that. Pay for, pay for pay cold for the fridge. Cold beverages, yeah. I'm going to actually open this really loudly. Okay. This is all going That's in. Foley, that That's is. Foley, that is. <laughs> oh. Is it still Foley if it is the, the thing that it's, of the thing? Oh yeah, I don't know. <laughs> right, so who are you? Hello, I'm Susie Gage. Oh, you did a... You changed your voice slightly. <laughs> we all do it. Yeah. So well, it's weird saying your own name. It is. Surprisingly weird. <clears throat> That's the, my intro to the podcast is me saying my own name, because it's in the title. Yeah. And feeling awkward about it. Yeah. And uh, I think maybe 30% of the podcasts I've recorded, I've commented on how I don't like to I did notice that your intros are quite sort of... <laughs> verbose. Ap- apologetic about, yeah, saying your own Anything. name. <laughs> They do, they're a little long. It depends, because, like, you've just listened to the Luke Turner yeah. one, and that's definitely a longer one, because I wanted to talk about that, how you support artists. But it's being. really nice, I think, to have an intro to what you're going to be talking about to sort of set the scene. I think that's a yeah. good thing. Usually they're kind of less about what's coming up and more about, you know, a dog I saw. <laughs> also um, interesting. Also, yeah. But I rarely leave the house now, so I... I have no dogs to talk about. Oh, just out the window, dogs. Just out the window, dogs. <laughs> I live in Reading, so they're, oh. they're drugs dogs. Drugs. <laughs> Definitely drugs dogs. Is this a very good segue that you're going no, for? No, no, I'm going to... It could be a good segue, but I'm not going to use Too it soon, that way. Yeah. I'm just going to talk about how Reading smells of weed the whole time now. I think it's because there is just a little gaggle of lads who smoke by a garage. Mm. Just maybe... 30 metres from my kitchen window. But they smoke the strongest smelling weed, like to the point where it's uncomfortable. I haven't, I used to, so I grew up quite near Reading, but I haven't been, I haven't been back so to where Reading. where were you? I grew up in Buckinghamshire, so near, so Amersham, okay. High Wycombe kind of area. Okay, Amersham. Yeah. So, um, you are, what, a psychologist? Yep. And how often do you get called a psychiatrist? Um, not very often, actually. Oh, no. Yeah. That would have been funnier if it was if, often. Well, so I'm also an epidemiologist, and lots of people think epidemiology is all about the skin. So yeah, that's something I like get it. a lot. But it's from epidemic rather than epidermis. So, oh, okay. So it's about the study of population health, looking at patterns in populations to understand health. I did not know that, yeah. but I've written down the word epidemiologist yeah. 
with a question mark yeah. saying that I should ask you what an epidemiologist oh, sorry, is. Sorry, I've, I've so, preempted you. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't. This is a checklist Synergy, of things. We, yeah. we can cross that off now. <laughs> what, what's the deal with ranking of your job as well? You're an associate professor. Yeah. Do, do you well, have to do anything to become a full-on professor? So I actually just got promoted. Um, <gasps> it's kind of a weird English-American difference in terminology so I got promoted from lecturer to senior lecturer okay but in some well in the US and now in some institutions in the UK but not actually Liverpool where I work um lecturer is called assistant professor and senior lecturer is called associate professor so in some universities around the country people on the same job as me are associate professors in some they're senior lecturers but to become a professor you I'm not 100% sure, but it's a, you kind of apply for it and you have to have... Um, there's a load of criteria that you have to meet. So it's not like uh, you kill a professor and... Oh, and um, <laughs> take on their mantle. Oh, that would make academic life more interesting, but I sadly like not. It <laughs> you know, just, just... You know what? There can only be one. Slash 20 per department, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there can only be a limited number. Yeah. I mean, that is true, and academia is kind of... It's one of those weird professions where people don't retire or seem to be less likely to retire than to sort of become yeah. some sort of emeritus professor and still be knocking around the department in their 70s or 80s even, mm. um, rather than going reach 65 or, I mean, by the time this podcast goes out, it might be 75, who knows, but <laughs> reach whatever age you retire and just go, see ya, bye. So yeah. it is a kind of thing where people do stick around for like a sort of vocational I suppose, kind of thing. you know, you are, you're, you're meant to get better as, at your job the more knowledge you have, so I suppose it kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so, and I think it's, it is something that you do because you're kind of passionate about it, and like, why would that suddenly stop when you reach a certain age? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, do you know what? I've wasted I, the last 45 years I don't care life. anymore. <laughs> I'm going to start gardening I should have been a gardening professor yeah horticulturalist no yeah probably kinda. yeah kind of I don't know <laughs> sorry <laughs> did you have a plan because you are an academic it feels like a weird not something you would get up in the morning at 13 and go I'm gonna be a psychologist like how do you get from there to here yeah, I definitely didn't have a plan. <laughs> I think some people do have plans. Some people I was speaking to someone who said since she was five she wanted to be a she wanted to be a professor. She wanted to be an academic. She knew that was what she wanted to do, but I was definitely not She likes the holidays. Oh now that is a big old misconception. Yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah. Students get the holidays. You don't. Staff don't, because my job is teaching, but it's also research. So mm. basically, the summer holidays are when I get all of my research done because the students aren't there. But no, I didn't have a master plan or or a sort of strategy at that age. I think I wanted to be an astronaut, but um, given that I was, I mean, I've told this story a lot now. But given I was once seasick in a pedalo, I think space Fine. travel probably not for me. <laughs> There's no water in space. Well, you know, but oh, well, <laughs> I've also been travel sick in a lift. Admittedly, that was after a transatlantic flight, which but I think... Yeah, that's uppy down yeah. emotion as well. So that's definitely on the flying yeah. into space thing. I did actually... I met Helen Sharman mm-hmm. last year, who was the first British person in space. And she 
around the time when I was having this dream of being an astronaut, she was actually living that dream, yeah. going to space. And I said to her, I really, I was like watching you and wanting to be an astronaut, and then I was seasick in a pedalo. And the look of sort of, she tried to disguise it. She was lovely, don't get me wrong, but there was a slight flicker of disdain that crossed her face, and yeah. I went, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but no, I, I didn't have a plan. I did an undergrad degree in psychology because I thought it was interesting. Um, I moved up to London and went to UCL. Undergrad and did degree that. is just a degree degree. A, yeah, BSc BA or BA. Yeah. yeah. Um, and. At the end of it, I didn't really want to get a job, so I did a master's. Um, which is post-grad. Which is, yeah, the first level of post-grad. So there's no grad in there, it's just under it or after it. You well, you graduate from your undergrad, and then for that brief moment, that is when you graduate, and everything Until, you do yeah. beyond that is post-having graduated from that first mm. degree, I guess. So what, but I'm, yeah, it's, I'm a post-graduate podcaster right now. Because I'm after graduate. But if you if you're studying it, yeah, you are postgraduate if you've graduated. I feel like I'm studying it. I yeah? feel like I'm honing my craft. <laughs> yeah, I reckon. Um, so yeah, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so I did. Didn't want to get a job. Yeah, so I did a master's, which was another year. Um, I did all of that at UCL, and I really enjoyed it. But at that point, even at that point, it did. I didn't really realise that research could be a career mm. I thought okay so now I've got these degrees in psychology I should probably become um, a, a sort of psychologist working in a hospital maybe I should think about doing clinical psychology I didn't really think research PhD I thought clinical yeah and then um, when my master's finished I was in a band that I'd been in since school and because all the rest of the band lived in Bristol I moved to Bristol mm. and then had kind of a good few years of not really using my degree or not doing anything and not thinking. Which is what Bristol's for. <laughs> yeah, it was great. We did lots of music stuff. And I worked uh, in some sort of temping jobs for a while. But then I did get a job at Bristol University doing mm. research. And that was the first time I thought, oh, wow, this could actually be a career. And I could see people who've gone from research assistant jobs, gone to do PhDs, then become postdoctoral researchers, mm lecturers, professors, you know, that, that was a route that I could then see. This could be a career for life. And I thought, oh, great, so I'll start applying for PhDs. And I applied and I applied and I applied and I just didn't get anywhere at all. I think I applied four years in a row and that just oh, wow. couldn't get any funding to do it. So I was, I was literally just about to give up. I thought, OK, this is obviously isn't working. I'll retrain. And I was going to be thinking about becoming a secondary school teacher, like yeah. maybe a biology teacher or something like that. For the holidays. For the holidays. I mean, I think there'll probably be teachers listening going, we don't get holidays either. We don't get holidays. <laughs> We're just marking the yeah. whole time. But, um, okay, I decided to apply one more time and that was the time when I got the PhD. And it's bizarre looking back on it now because I very nearly didn't do any of this that's got me mm. kind of where I, like, where I am in this lovely hotel room where right now. Where I am today. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's... Like the sliding doors moment where mm. paths could have gone. In fact, they very Good nearly went. Movie. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever I... actually seen it. <laughs> but I it's. I can't remember if I, it was any good, but I know I went to see it at the cinema. I think the conceit is good that the sort of a tiny yeah. change in timing, like one footstep different, and your life goes off on two different routes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I actually got also I got offered a PhD, and then my supervisor was going to move to Lausanne in Switzerland. Mm. So I was I was all set to do that when I when I applied 
for another PhD in Bristol and on a completely different topic actually and then that was the PhD I ended up doing the one in Bristol which was looking at the links between cannabis and cigarette use and and mental health and it was kind of moving fields as well because to that point I'd basically just done psychology stuff but this was a PhD that was in an epidemiology unit. Yeah. And at the point at that time, I didn't really know what epidemiology was either. Yeah. Um, it's the skin, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, what's this got to do with the skin? <laughs> um, so it was a bit, yeah, a big kind of, lots of being in the right place at the right time and saying yes to things. Mm. But there was no master plan and, and it very nearly didn't happen. And actually I gave gave the graduate address to UCL um, student graduates last year, mm. which was amazing and actually terrifying as well. UCL, is that...? University College London. That's College where London. I did my I was trying to work out degrees. what the C was. Yeah. Because yeah. I was thinking, University City London? That doesn't sound right. Yeah, Sorry. so it's... Yeah, college. I don't... It's... I don't know why. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so... And in that, I kind of... Writing that talk about they wanted me to talk about sort of how I got where I was and I realized oh it was just by being curious about things and kind of Mm. saying yes to opportunities and trying stuff out and not worrying too much but I did I was very close to giving up because it is there's something about academia that's quite tough and you need to have a thick skin for it it's lots and lots of rejection Mm. rejection you have to apply for funding like research grant funding all the time yeah it's a it's a weird one isn't it it's not like you're just sitting in a room thinking yeah you know you you have to be um at least thinking about something that more than one that that a group of people want you to be thinking about or looking into yeah and and it's really becoming quite metricized as well you get judged on how much money you bring into the university and how many papers you published and impact is something really important so you have to come up with the idea of the research that you want Mm. to do then you have to write a grant application to get funding from one of the funding bodies so there are research councils that are government funded but there are also sort of charities like cancer research uk fund a lot of scientific research and the Wellcome Trust, kind of benevolent organisations like mm. them, fund all sorts of really interesting things around biomedical research. And so you have to then write the application and justify why you want a certain amount of money to do this thing. And most gra- most grants that are put in are not funded. So mm. you spend a lot of time writing things that are going to be rejected. Yeah. And then when you actually get the money and you do the research, you then write it up as a paper and you submit it to a journal and it gets rejected. And then, so you submit it to another journal and it gets rejected. And it's it's quite it tough like, sounds great. <laughs> at times. Sounds like a great job to do. Just get told, no, yeah. no, your idea is bad. Sorry. Yeah, well, the most frustrating is when it's your idea is great, but we don't have enough money to fund everything, and so we're not funding yours. But I suppose like 150 years ago, you would have just had a rich patron to. to I definitely think it's changed a lot. I mean, obviously, I haven't been doing it for that long, so I can't, I don't know what it was like, but speaking to people who are approaching the end of their careers, even they're saying it's changed since they started, and I Mm. think the sort of romantic turn of the century idea of, of academia is very much sitting in a room thinking and mm, kind mm-hmm. of and yeah just going oh I wonder whether that would work and although actually so having just written this book about drugs a lot of the things in that 
a lot of the substances in that book, I wanted to write a bit about the history. And oh. so many of the drugs, it was all someone who discovered it by testing it on themselves. And so I think that's a bit of a historical thing as well as going, oh, look, I've mixed these things together. Let's see what it does. Swallow yeah, it. Yeah. And oh, I'm having a trip. Wow. Yeah. This is great. Slash awful. Yeah. Awful, yeah. Um, yeah, having to justify what you're interested in must, must be a really strange place to be. I think it stifles creativity a little bit because, I mean, it's also sort of necessity as the mother of invention as well. So actually mm. having constraints that you have to stick within can be really useful for that process. But also there are lots of questions that I think are interesting, but it would be very hard to find funding to answer them because they're not a priority at the moment. Mm. Although having said that, doing research into drugs and mental health, I'm quite lucky in that in that, that is a kind of public and policy interest at the moment. Yeah. So it is possible to get things like that are being funded and i think it's something that you can justify to your dad like if your dad reads the daily mail like you can show him that well that guy on the street i'm working out why he is on the street yeah there yeah yeah you know it's not um it's that thing with academia sometimes that you someone could be researching something that the majority of people will never have any... It won't touch their life in any yeah. way. So that then you feel like, well, why, why is that person getting money? And it's, well, it's still important. It's still important to Well, also, you need that kind of basic work to build onto the applied stuff as well. Mm. So if you don't understand the core concepts, then your applied stuff isn't going to work or you're going to waste loads of money trying things that, def- that aren't going to work, which you could have known if you did the sort of simple basic science research yeah, first. Yeah, that's why... Architects need to know metallurgy and physics and all that before exactly, they can yeah. actually make their stupid-looking building. But I'm definitely lucky in the topic that I've sort of chosen or ended up researching because it is something that people are in, people are interested in it. People have an opinion about it. It's really easy to talk to people with no. You don't need to have a, any scientific understanding. You need to have an understanding of people, and we are all people. So. Yeah anyone can ha- can talk about this subject yeah and literally even if you've never obviously there's no one who's never taken a drug but of the um fun drugs what's it called no, recreational. recreational yeah um, i rec- mean there are no good terms for these things no. it's something that people but argue like, about still even if you've not taken recreational drugs you will have come across them through media or or whatever even eastenders or yeah but it's very rare that no one's taken anything from sort of alcohol coffee mm. you know I, most people have at least had a cup of tea yeah um and most people in the uk certainly have had alcohol um and yeah so and the illicit or illegal or however you want to call it drugs use is less common but most people don't have to go far away from themselves to know someone who's tried it or, yeah. you know, as you say, it's also in popular culture. Mm. I only have to go about 30 metres over to that <laughs> garage. <laughs> it's not very far at all. I don't know. It's it, it's a strange thing with the way cult we are culturally at the moment and, you know, the experts. Who needs experts <laughs> thing? It, it's a strange time. Yeah. Yeah this work still needs to be done. We do need to understand why we are the way we are. Well, it's... I mean, if you look at sort of national statistics, we're in quite a worrying time because substance use 
isn't really going up. In, in some cases, it's going down. But deaths from particularly illicit drugs, particularly things like heroin, but also cocaine, mm. deaths are going up. And that's really, really worrying because its use isn't particularly going up. Mm. But something about what the, the state of our country at the moment is making taking illicit drugs more dangerous mm. when actually we know more and more about ways to reduce harm. And maybe it's that... Um, there's this sort of ageing population of heroin users who um, have been using heroin for a long time and so have other health problems. Maybe it's uh, austerity politics has closed a load of uh, charities who do work with people who use drugs. Um, there's lots of potential reasons about why this is happening, but we really need to understand it before it becomes even more of a crisis than it already is. Yeah. So let's get off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> She actually pulled out a box. I know, <laughs> hidden under the hotel bed. Yeah, it came in a flight case. I'm surprised <laughs> you didn't hear opening the case. It's like especially it's a box you've been carrying around a long yeah, time. Yeah, I've got a really bad back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how do you how do you fight that um, anti-expert thing? How do you like? You are an expert. You've spent years learning your subject, understanding vast amounts of research to then have someone on the internet tell you, <laughs> you're wrong, in you? Yeah, and that's a really good question. And it's something that sort of people, science communicators or people who do public engagement talk about all the time. It's like, mm. what's the best way to do this kind of work of talking about research? in a way that isn't off-putting to people or isn't patronising or isn't exclusionary and how like how you how do you do it where you're not just kind of preaching to the converted of people who are already engaged in this kind of thing but who probably don't need to know mm. really important information about risks from drug taking or already know it they're not the people who are the ones who are potentially going to die from doing a drug in a dangerous place or in a dangerous way or or more dangerous, you know. It's, it's, yeah. it's no drug uses without harm, and I include alcohol and <coughs> tobacco in that as well. But it's... You say, like, I'm an expert, but I'm also a person, and it's the way that doctors are also patients, you know. We, mm. we, we're not something separate from everyone else. We're part of a, the community that we live in, and we're part of the society that we are in, and that kind of thing. So that's... I try and be as human as possible in mm. the work that I do and bring voices that aren't just experts. So certainly with when I started the Say Why to Drugs podcast, it was so amazing to have Pip involved mm. because it was immediately someone who's from a completely different world to me in terms of sort of not a scientist, not someone who's... but. But not someone who's not an expert either, because someone who's got a, a lived experience, which so is just as valuable Pip's, as reading Pip's books. Pip's job in the Say Why to Drugs podcast is um, if you watch CSI and they say, uh, what, are we going to test the DNA? Someone, the, his job is the guy who goes, DNA? So, <laughs> yeah. that, so that the character has a reason to be explaining yeah. DNA again for the audience. Yeah, but it works really well, because also he can talk about what he's heard about the drugs and yeah. that can then lead to a conversation about sort of how we go about developing evidence where it comes from and also why some potential myths and misconceptions exist mm. but like you say it's also if I start saying something 
and I'm not doing it in a good enough way, then he's immediately there to go, wait, what? What are you talking about? And it's so helpful because it makes me think about how I'm explaining stuff and it just it's a question that the person who's listening is thinking. Yeah. So it's essential that that is there and so it's not just missed. Yeah. And it, it's definitely nice that it's not just a um, oh this one time you know this one time I was, I was on this and then you know I was in the lift and I was feeling really nauseous. <laughs> um, but it, it like it has um it's a really difficult thing to do to talk about drugs without judgment, but without being the opposite end that kind of glamorization or yeah. Well, as like a cultural identity, you know, which is something I've always found interesting about drugs. How we people wrap that they have a little bit of their own personality is that drug, mm-hmm. like especially weed. Weed has like a whole culture around yeah, it. Yeah, but also alcohol, I mm. think, I'd in a different I, way. Because I don't drink. Um, all I think about with alcohol is the look people give me when I say I don't drink. But that's, yeah, so this is the thing that really gets me about the sort of hypocrisy that we have, certainly in this country and in lots of the rest of the the Western world, for want of a better mm. phrase, around drugs, there's sort of this feeling that taking drugs is a moral failing or is some somehow deviant or you know mm. there's there's like a moralisation around it and yet alcohol is so far the other way that if you don't drink people find it weird and I think that is shifting slightly even yeah. in the recent in the last year I feel like it's slowly the tide is turning on on that but it's still it's it's a weird thing because i think sometimes think people think you're judging them by your decision absolutely you know i i cut down my drink dramatically after finished touring with pip and then just gradually winged it out and um i was with with a friend for a curry the other day and literally he was like when he turned up my house, he brought beers, and I was like, ah, oh, sorry, man, I don't drink. You, you, da, da, da. And then, yeah, it was kind of this... We had a good 20 minutes of awkwardness over me not drinking. And it's like, it doesn't affect you. Yeah. It doesn't... It's not me saying you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And you can still drink. I'm yeah. still going to be the same person. I'm not going to... Oh, yeah. my God. I can't believe you're drinking. You're, you're drinking Cinzano. <laughs> I mean, you could ju- judge someone for drinking Cinzano, but... I don't even know what it is. I just remembered the word. And I was glad it is actually an alcoholic beverage and not, like, paint stripper or something. <laughs> but you could drink paint stripper. Don't. But yeah, you could. it's not advisable. It's, if it's a liquid, you can drink it. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean you should drink yeah. it. Yeah, but I think, I think you're exactly right, and it's really interesting to hear sort of your experience of it, because I actually... I. I usually drink, but last year I gave up or I stopped drinking because I found mm. myself getting into a problematic relationship with it as I um, sort of developed anxiety and I what, found the drink myself was never put in the toilet seat. Down, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I found myself drinking a lot, like most nights, to try and deal yeah. with anxiety. And because like I do research into the link between drugs and mental health, I sort of knew. This is this is becoming oh. an unhealthy relationship, and so I just I think I wrote something yeah. about this. <laughs> so I stopped drinking, and I don't. I, it's not going to be forever, but for now, I don't miss it at all. Mm. And the only annoying thing is occasionally people 
commenting on it, like you say. Oh. Although it hasn't happened as much as I thought, and possibly it's because partly the reason I stopped drinking is because I like, had anxiety because I had a miscarriage, mm. and I think people like I also spoke quite openly about it. I'm not, I'm not sort of hiding it, or I don't. I'm happy to talk about it. Happy, maybe not the right word, but I'm fine to talk about <laughs> it. Happy yeah. about it. <laughs> um, and so I think people sort of people certainly who know me know that that happened and so yeah well then it also then you can tell probably in the back of their heads they're going oh i wonder if that means she's pregnant again and it's like no it doesn't mean that it just means <laughs> that i've stopped drinking <laughs> for a bit but it's i'm liking not drinking at the moment and i think i probably will drink in the future but right now it's great and it's i feel like at the moment there's a lot of other nice things to drink i've got really into kombucha uh-huh. <laughs> it's really tasty, and then loads and loads of alcohol-free That's the beers. Fermented one. Fermented tea. Yeah. Yeah. Andrea drinks that. She's in. She's listening. Excellent. She'll Hi, be Andrea. She's the first person to listen. <laughs> actually, she gets to listen to it before I edit it. Nice. She's the one who will tell me if you say something offensive. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't even realize. Really? Oh my god. Um, the urge to say something really offensive then. But you're I'm, allowed. I'm, I'm, I'm I can, what I can do in the edit is turn it up <laughs> yeah. and put like a big reverb on it. So it's like, yeah. instead of getting rid of it. Just amplify it. Accentuate yeah. it. Yeah. And then we can edit in afterwards, like Ricky Gervais going, just a joke, brah, <laughs> or something. Yeah. Because yeah. that I'm, gets you out of everything. It's true. It was a joke. I so s- it's fine to be offensive and unkind and cruel yeah whatever I do in my life I'm just gonna go with it's just a joke yeah you know I might have pushed your mum on the train track but <laughs> it was just a joke just put some lols you know? shrug emoji <laughs> yeah <laughs> I can't believe I just said shrug emoji there you go that's no, the I embarrassing thing I like, we should hire someone in just you should everyone should have an emoji person it would sort out any unemployment you, you can employ someone they just walk around with you and then if you think shrug emoji, they can They can just do it. act it out. I mean, you could just act it out yourself. <laughs> oh, my God. What, what have you got against Bob having a job? No, I'm happy for Bob to have what? a job. Sorry, oh Bob. Oh, my God. Sad face of crying oh emoji. <laughs> See, you'd be here helping you right now. <laughs> Thanks, or Bob. Or Bob. Bobette. Bobina. I don't know. What Bobby. The, Roberta. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> we'll leave that in. That's gold. Good. Um, <laughs> So, <clears throat> I think we we started with like how did you end up here, and, and clearly you had no pl- plan or no. anything. But that's how it always happens, yeah. isn't it? I think so. It's and definitely how my life has happened so far. Like I never had a plan to do a podcast with Scroobius Pip, but that happened. And I never, I always wanted to write a book, but I never actually thought I'd be able to do it. And yeah. my book. Yeah, you write all the time because you write for the Well, that's Guardian it. I never thought I was going to so write for so. The Guardian either. So when I started doing my PhD, I thought at the end of this, I'm going to have to write a PhD thesis, which is like 80,000 words or what have mm. you. Maybe less, probably less. Mine wasn't, but that was a mistake. Um, and I thought, well, I need to practice writing then. So I start writing a blog. So mm. I just started doing it with a couple of friends who were also doing PhDs. And we just put it up ourselves on like a WordPress site and kind of it had maybe 10 or 15 people reading each post and what have you um 
the people I picked to be blog buddies were a bad choice because they were in their final year of their PhD so they very quickly realised that actually they need to be getting on with writing their yeah. actual PhD and not a silly yeah. blog that no one reads. Um, so they stopped and I kind of inherited it and then as a bit of a punt I entered it into this um, science writing competition and it won oh. and part, some of the judges were people who uh, worked for the Guardian and at the time they had a science blog network of scientists and researchers writing on the Guardian website and they asked me to pitch the blog to them so I mm. did but this all kind of happened within the space of about six months so where I started my blog to practice writing suddenly I was writing on a website of a national newspaper <laughs> and real I, it was terrifying and it and this kind of the same thing happened with the podcast as well is that I had this idea to make this podcast quite a while ago and I tried I recorded a couple of interviews with scientists where I kind oh. of interviewed them about drugs and I didn't know what I was doing in terms of recording or in terms of interviewing and interviewing is difficult and I think I just thought oh you just ask people questions it's fine but there's a bit more to yeah. it than that who knew um it's all editing yeah it's all in the edit <laughs> um and so I've got these really dry echoey rubbish recordings mm. and then I kind of sat on the idea for a couple of years and it was only a chance uh, meeting with Pip well yeah he, he like because I went back and listened to that one I listened to it at the time um, but yeah it was because that you only came up because he was going to be in Bristol yeah I think it was yeah randomly he asked people he asked on <coughs> Twitter for people to suggest people on the podcast and someone suggested Huey Morgan and someone suggested me and yeah. Huey was busy yeah. so <laughs> you know could, things could have been very different imagine Huey Morgan and Scroobius Pips say why do drugs podcast would be amazing yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably It'd be, be better it damn be. it yeah <laughs> Sorry, world, you got me instead. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But you like, what, like a million downloads now? Yeah, over a million. Um, but that even that, like, I thought this would be a good thing, and I thought I, I wanted it to be useful and used, but I wasn't expecting it to be in the top ten of the iTunes chart the week it launched. Yeah. And that, I was not prepared that for that. It top was top ten of the actual chart the not, whole not yeah not the what we me and Stu do is like whittle down yeah. to the category whichever one of the categories that makes us look the highest oh yeah I'm, I'm number number seven in arts yeah I've already started looking at my book on the Amazon charts <sighs> and there are so many weirdly specific Amazon yeah. charts I think at one point I was at number 11 in lifestyle and addiction pharmacology <laughs> Which is nice. like the most specific chart. That's very specific. It's just me and David Nutt, basically. <laughs> and I'm still only at number 11. <laughs> but, He's got 10 books. Yeah. So. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it's things sort of run away with themselves. And there were things that I was just kind of trying out. And suddenly I was in a position where it's like, oh God, I've really got to make this good. I can't just try stuff out and hope and see what sticks. I've got to. Uh, but. But I, having listened back to the first few ones, it's definitely got better, the podcast, as it's mm. gone along. And I've learned so much doing it. And I'm, I'm still really proud of those first episodes. And still, the cannabis one, which was the first one we put out, is still the most listened to one. And I think yeah. people do, because it's, it's not... I mean, research has changed. So that was three and a half, maybe nearly four years ago now, that first episode. Mm. So obviously, a lot of research into cannabis has happened in the last four years, and legalisation has changed around the world. You know, I really need to do an update of that. Mm. But most, for the most part, it's not a kind of time-critical thing. So I think people, when they listen, they do go back 
or pick a drug that they're interested in or a drug that they have never heard of. Like, there's lots of different ways you can approach it, but you don't need to do it in order and you don't need to... Um, it's it, You can listen to one that was recorded four years ago and still get important, useful, hopefully interesting information yeah. out of it as well. Well, hopefully some some of the drugs we we've, we've got a good grounding on but at this point. But obviously, like you say, there's... With the way legalisation is happening in the States with cannabis, I think we're going to see a hell of a lot more research because of the fact that... Yeah, it's, it's possible to do it. Um, yeah, far more mainstream now. And you can do sort of better quality research. Although, to be fair, a lot of the research to look at the long-term effects of a substance, you still can't do an experiment in the same way that if you want to look at intoxication, you can give people a substance and, and research, like, take data from them while they're intoxicated. Yeah. But if you want to look at, like, does long-term cannabis use cause schizophrenia? You can't take a group of teenagers and randomly assign half of them to use <laughs> cannabis for the next five years and half of them not to, for multiple reasons. But, I mean, it would be... Yeah, I feel like there's laws. Yeah. I, I mean, I sit on an ethics committee and I think we'd have problems with that. Yeah. But even if you could get ethics for it, it would be, A, incredibly expensive. It would take an incredibly long time to do because your study would be running for years and years and years. Mm. And the, how would you get people to ad- adhere to their condition for five years? You know, mm-hmm. five years of, of not doing something or doing something. Like, people would just drop out. So uh, the way we do this kind of research, and this is what observational epidemiology is, is you, look at, you follow up people over time and look at what they choose to do and see whether that affects their later mental health or physical yeah. health or what have you. And that, that kind of study design was how we discovered that smoking caused lung cancer. But it is really hard to get at causing something because the people who choose to use cannabis are different from the people who choose not to mm. in lots of ways other than just their cannabis use. They might also use other drugs or they might have different friendship groups or, you know, all sorts of things might impact a person's choice to use cannabis this is like this idea that oh well cannabis is a gateway drug to harder drugs it's like well maybe but maybe also you're going to a drug exactly yeah exactly you know mcdonald's is the gateway to to obesity or yeah yeah like i'm because i'm already going to that place of course i'm going to get the fiery nuggets yeah and a big sugary uh, milkshake or what have you yeah Mm, yummy. <laughs> I, do, I do miss the milkshakes quite a bit. Yeah, sorry. It's the Shouldn't... only thing. Well, hot apple pies. I get, get... Right, guys. You, you know about this, guys. Banana milkshake, hot apple pie, dunk. <laughs> I must admit, I don't think I've been to a McDonald's since I was about 12. Now to go. you have a reason to Before go. we went to watch Wick and Wanderers, we'd go and get a McDonald's. So Good before times. the McFlurry, they used to just have Mr Whippy in their ice cream and you could buy it they would this is a legit thing they would put an apple pie in a tray thing and put ice cream on it okay that sounds good get, if we go back far enough <laughs> if we go let me take you back uh, 24 years to West Thurrock Retail park yes. McDonald's, not Lakeside. <laughs> uh, and you could get yourself a little seven-inch McDonald's pizza. What? In either just uh, margarita or pepperoni. <laughs> yes. Wow. What yeah. went wrong? I know. I know. There was, they had a pizza oven and everything. I know that because I worked there uh, at 16 years old. Wow. I used to work, I wasn't allowed to work past 10 o'clock because I was only 16. Because you were only a little one. I would regularly work past 10 o'clock. 
Naughty. Ronald McDonald is a slave driver. <laughs> and sometimes, like, I, I just did, because there was a, a nice girl who'd give me a lift home. Nice. She was a lot older than me, though. Like, she was like... 19. What? Ancient. I know. <laughs> That's 16. 19 year olds are ancient. There are different Very worlds, yeah. Intimidating. That was a sidetrack. <laughs> this is what, what it's all about. That's what life's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, we've said about that. We've said about that. We've said about that. Uh, we've kind of said about that. So, you mentioned in um, when, when you were on Pips. About a double bass? Why is there a double bass? Oh, that's not mine. Uh, so there is a, there's a double bass in my house. There was a double bass in my house in Bristol. Was there a double bass Is that a house? different double bass? Yeah, I think it is. It belongs to my friend Tamsin. Okay. Who is a climate scientist and all-round mega person. Um, but but she's got a double bass. That's a lot of wood she's wasted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite an old double bass. She should be playing the violin. It was a second hand when she bought it, so... Oh, good. No, that's fine it's, then. Uh, it's that's allowed. Fine. So what was the band? So I was in a band, but I didn't play the double bass in it. That's I, such I, a shame. I play synths and sing. In fact, I've been in lots of bands. So when I was at school in sixth form, I joined a band with uh, some boys from the boys' school. Uh, yeah. And um, your mum was not happy. <laughs> she was more happy about that band than the band I was in before with some boys from two years older in the boys' school. <laughs> she was not happy about that band. That's another story that we're not going to talk about on the podcast. <laughs> but um, your so, mum is an avid listener. She yeah, likes. she will be listening. I mean, if I Very put it on Facebook, letters. she almost certainly will listen. <laughs> so hi, mum. Um, I don't mind her listening. Mostly, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, in sixth form, we started this band. Well, they were actually, they were already going, and I saw them at the school talent show. Mm. And uh, they had, their their name in that talent show was Two-Headed Sex Beats, which was a Chris nice. Morris reference. Yeah. Um, and um, their singer left, or something happened anyway, and uh, we I met up with one of them at, on the way to a Trail of Dead gig in London, uh, on the train, and he's like, oh, do you want to join the band? I was like, yes, please, thank you, please. So uh, I went round to their house with my not very glamorous sort of keyboard, like, Mm. budget model just for kind of playing the piano on. Um, But because I could play Light My Fire by The Doors, I was allowed in the band, and we started off just doing covers. Our first ever gig was supporting Lindisfarne. Nice. (laughs) Um, Actually, maybe that was our second gig. Our first gig was at a friend's party, and they had a, they had a party in a barn, and so all the boys all dressed in drag, and we played as Susie and the Barn She's. Oh, nice. Very good. Nice. Very good. Um, then we became The Shades, which the Shades. was an amazing nice. name. And that was when we were doing covers, so we played this gig with Linda's Fun, which was also in a barn. Early gigs very much in barn-related music. <laughs> and we also played the Holmer Green Village Fate, Nice. As the Shades, which was had a brilliant moment where we finished a song and over the PA it came a we interrupt the music to we interrupt the shades to announce that everything on the bric a brac stall is now fifty pence. Oh. And now back to the music. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, it was oh, truly nice. we were living the dream. But Wickham, High Wickham had a really great venue, um, called the White Horse mm. and uh, it was a strip club during the day and a gig venue during the night. Um Daytime strip pubs aren't great. 
well, I didn't go during the day, to be honest. You should have. You should have, so we could have a conversation now. (laughs) If you've gone, experience it. Well, so I don't know whether... I mean, sometimes I wonder whether I dreamed this, but on Channel 4, there was a kind of musical documentary about sex workers. I think it was called Porn the Musical, Mm. where sex workers sang about their life as a sex worker. In the late 90s, early 2000s, it must have been. But a lot of that was filmed in the green room of the White Horse. I was like, so I was watching it, uh, I think it was at university, so maybe it was between 2001 and 2004, and I was like, oh, I've been in that room, and that got me some (laughs) some looks. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that, we played some really great gigs, and then we all went off to different unis, but not too far away. So I went to London, our bass player went to Southampton, drummer to Exeter, and guitarist went to Bristol. Mm. And the guitarist was studying medicine, so he, his degree was longer than everyone else's. Sure. So as we all finished our degrees, we just gradually moved to Bristol. But while we were at uni, we tended to play one gig in each of those places per term. Mm. And then over the summer, we would do lots of gigs. And so I never did any of the kind of travelling because we were always touring. So we one summer uh, in, during uni, we went up to Scotland and did a little mini tour. Yeah. Um, Brian, our guitarist, was had family up there, so we stayed with his aunt and uncle. God, those poor people just like played music all day and messed about, and then went oh, like played the drithy duck in Inverness and things like that. <laughs> it was brilliant, but yeah, it was very kind. And our like our family all very kind, letting us sort of practice in their houses yeah. and that kind of thing. My parents bought a collie by the end of her life was completely deaf and I do think it's because she, she had a bit of a crush on the drummer in my band and she used to just <laughs> sit by his drum kit while he was playing and stare at him. She recognised his car when it drove around the corner no, to our house. She would get mega excited more than for anyone else. Yeah. Maybe he had a scent. I think it was because she did sometimes try and hump his legs. <laughs> She humping. Well, well, yeah, and also she'd been neutered as well, so I think it was just a confused, confused love. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, it was great. It was the best of times. And then when when we all moved to Bristol, we signed to this amazing Bristol record label called Sink and Stove, and we did mm. quite a lot of gigs. But um, so we played. We did a couple of years of really doing it, putting out records, and like we supported some quite cool people and then um it all kind of fell apart because yeah just these things do and our yeah our guitarist um who was by that point a medic um i was obviously really busy and went went to new zealand for a while to do some stuff and it just it just if we wanted to do it i think we probably would have all had to say right we're gonna quit our jobs for this year and kind of go for it and it just wasn't the right time or <coughs> place to do it. See, so. that's the thing, though, isn't it? It sounds like most of you were all doing quite vocational things, whether you realised at the time you Yeah, were. well, I wasn't at the time. I was working as a secretary in the NHS, and it was awful. But I can imagine. <laughs> we also all lived in a house together, like the monkeys. Nice. It was great. But Bristol was such a great place to be. Um, in fact, I was also listening to your episode with Andy Hung, and one mm-hmm. of my favourite gigs we ever did was... Uh, with um so Rosie Plain, who's now pretty famous, mm-hmm. uh Safety Word, who are probably the best Bristol band, sadly now departed, us, and then opened by Fuck Buttons. Uh, an unheard of band called Fuck Buttons. <laughs> Where are they now? <laughs> me and Pip always get it as well. I was like, Do you remember that time Adele yeah. opened 
like we did one with it was us, Jack Penyart, Jack Penyarty headlining us, and then Adele opening, and it's like that's weird. Yeah, we've we've of the um like rad huge female pop stars. I think Florence and the Machine's been on before us. Adele. Kate Bush, yeah. Kate Bush. No, Kate Nash. Kate Nash. But we, no, we have been on before Kate Nash, but never on. She never had to support us, lucky girl. It's weird. It's like really weird. I think yeah. we were like, if you got to support us, you got really big. Yeah. Nice. It's not true. Kingmakers or King, queenmakers, maybe. Only for women. Yeah. yeah. We're sexist. <laughs> like the good version of yeah. sex. Is, that, is there a good version of sexist? Uh, misandry is supposed to be the opposite of misogyny. So, what, that's pro-woman? One more, sort of anti-man. I don't think there's pro-anything. Yeah. So not like... Feminist. I mean, that's not even... I've heard of that. I've heard of that. We kind of... I think we're good. Do you... Like, is there anything you... Well, I could talk more about the book if you want That's what we... Yes, that's what I needed to ask. Like, so... What is it like to have, to have, have done all this work, all this research, and now to finally be, like, putting it physically, it's right there, It actually. is, yeah. Like, a physical thing in the world. It's weird. Um, so, I mean, writing blogs was always quite, kind of, nerve-wracking. The putting something up on the internet that then was going mm. to have its own life, and there was nothing I could do about it was quite nerve-wracking. Well, actually, it, was, it never stopped being nerve-wracking, really. Mm. Because particularly when I was, was writing about things like plain packaging of cigarettes, and there are people with very strong opinions about that. And also, I've written a lot about e-cigarettes, and there are people with very strong opinion, opinions about that as well. And people can take your words and twist them. And yeah. The first post I ever wrote about plain packaging of cigarettes was... Um, still on the blog before, well before The Guardian and no one was really reading it and I tweeted about it and Cancer Research UK retweeted it and not long after that I went to a um, a talk a sort of debate about plain packaging in mm. Bristol um, where Philip Morris Tobacco is based and after the uh, after the debate a woman came up to me and started talking and then to like I was there with quite a lot of people I work with and she went oh I know who you lot are, you're the tobacco and alcohol research group which one of you is Susie Gage and she was like worked for Philip Morris and had heard my name and I was like well that's really weird and like just a bit not I don't know it just put me slightly just was confusing really and then when I got home that night I also discovered that a libertarian blogger had written a whole blog about me and why because I like knitting I couldn't understand sort of economic policy or you know all of these kind of things and kept referring to me as kiddo and I was like at the time I think I was 32 so I was like yeah thanks mate (laughs) kiddo great but that is is that like I suppose if they're going to, if they have to go down that route of trying to undermine the person yeah, no, it, rather than... that's exactly it. I've, you know. After the initial sort of shock, I was really relieved because they hadn't argued with my argument. They'd done these argument, uh, like ad hominem attacks on mm. me, or not attacks even, but just kind of sort of trying to belittle me as a person. It's like, well, if you don't, if you can't respond to what I've written and you're just responding to me as a person, then fine like that's good yeah because the thing that i really worry about with all of this stuff 
around drugs, so the podcast and now the book as well, is because it's an area where there's so much misinformation uh. and it's really hard to find good quality evidence-based information about drugs. Like everything I wrote in the book is available online, but to find it all and put it all together was really tough. And the thing I'm just terrified about is adding more misinformation, so unintentionally Mm. getting something wrong or misphrasing something so it's unclear and, yeah, creating more problems, you know. And Because it's an area where people have a lot of opinions about it and also lots of the people who use drugs know far more, or you certainly illicit drugs, know far more about the effects of those drugs and also a lot about kind of the science as well than researchers because researchers are quite often playing catch-up, particularly when you're thinking about novel psychoactive substances and yeah. things like that where <clears throat> the people are using them for a while before scientists or researchers even realise they exist, potentially. So they know about the, they know what these substances do, they know like the chemical formulations, they know how to make them and that kind of thing. And so that's quite far away from the science that I know about. I know lots about sort of looking at population health and understanding risk and things like that. But thinking about that kind of thing, and also I've written quite a lot about the history and I'm not a historian and I'm really conscious that there's a lot of uh, like medical and science historians who get really frustrated with scientists kind of steamrolling into their field and in the beginning of their book going, this is what happened in the past. And like, because <laughs> history is definitely one thing and not at all exactly the same as science that you, it's the same thing of being built on evidence and some, some evidence yeah. is better than others for what happened in the past and who writes the history is really important as to how you interpret it, as to where, like how true it is. Uh-huh. There's not really truth and proof in science, in history the same way there's not really truth and proof in science because it's all like varying levels of evidence. So I'm in that weird, like the book is coming out in like a week and a half. So it'll probably... Just probably will have... be out by the time this comes yeah, out, maybe. Yeah, I would thought yeah. so. So, yeah, by then I'll probably know like it might have had reviews or that kind of thing. But at the moment, very few people have read it who don't have to be nice about it because they're in some way related to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or they're, oh, involved in, they're involved in publishing it. So... It's really, I, I really don't know whether it's any good or not. Like, I'm really proud like, of it, and it, I feel like I've done the best job that I could do of it. But it's perfectly possible that everyone could hate it. Well, someone, they've gone to the effort of physically making it. Yeah. You know, so somebody thinks it's good enough to be something that will be here potentially. Yeah, they're, they're, a publisher is, is going to put it in bookshops. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to, like, there'll be libraries yeah. that buy it. But you know what I mean, until... Do libraries still exist? Yeah, yeah. please. Always libraries. (laughs) Ah, I love libraries. But um, yeah, I think it's just entirely sort of paranoia and the culmination of having written it and now this... And there's no edit button. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, this the second edition, and the good thing is if I do spot typos and things, the uh, Kindle version and the... The yeah, ebook true. can be updated straight away, um, and and then the second edition, the paperback when it comes out, and that kind of thing, they can all be changed. But for yeah, they've printed. I mean, that's a proof copy there, but the hardback has also now been printed. Yeah. I've got copies of it at home. How, how many have they printed? I don't know. That's, that's the thing. I don't scary. know. It probably does actually say in my contract, but um. You know what, when the first album was done, we didn't know how many they'd done. Yeah. But I actually don't think we ever know. 
like it's really weird. You kind of like, yeah, yeah, do this, yeah. put this out in the world for me. And then like there's this group of people who go off and do it. It's really weird yeah. when you've made something that capitalism values. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a weird time when it's done, it's finished, and that it's been a long time getting to that point. So mm. I met my literary agent the day after the Brexit vote happened. And that's when the book, the idea of the book first started. And then we yeah. wrote a proposal, we put it to publishers. Um, we got a deal, I started writing it, I sent the first draft, it came back. Um, but, oh, because you know, it's all of this kind of thing. you don't have to write it in advance. Yeah, I got, Depends what you're trying I to got write. a yeah a deal for um so the proposal had i think i wrote two or three chapters mm. and the introduction and the kind of brief so it was a the proposal was sort of 20,000 words but it wasn't the whole book mm. yeah so then i wrote the book and then we yeah so and then then suddenly like things kind of happen in fits and starts so suddenly it's you've got the copy edit and you need to get it back within 2 days and then you get the proof and you need to check that and then and then you've got to go and record the audiobook and then it all goes quiet again for a bit. Mm. And then suddenly it's like, oh, the books have all arrived and, you, and um, you've got to start thinking about interviews and you have to start talking to a publicist and that's terrifying and brilliant <laughs> as well. And now I'm in the weird time where it's... Nothing's probably going to happen for the next couple of weeks and then suddenly it's going to be out in the real world yeah. and I'm going to know what people think of it. And I just, it, I just want to know now. I, I, I just, yeah... Is the sort of uncertainty of I'm sure it is all going to be fine because, and lots of really amazing people, researchers and friends and lovely kind people have read loads of the chapters in it and given mm. me brilliant, really helpful feedback on it. And I'm, and without them, I'd be really terrified right now. But um, yeah, it's it's a weird, uncertain time right now. The the hardest bit I find with any sort of release is the um, getting over my own. Like ickiness about self promotion. Yeah. The buy my thing. Yeah. Thing, especially now, even even with okay, you're gonna have some support from your publisher and all that, but even now, you still have to say it. Yeah, and I think it's much as well. easier now because of sort of social media, but also maybe that devalues it because everyone can be a bit of a self-publicist on Twitter and what have you. Well, so what I've, I like, I think using PIP as a, a gauge, so if you've posted more about your thing than PIP has <laughs> posted Then you're probably stuff, doing a bit too then much. Then you're doing too much. Yeah. He seems to have just got a nice level and he, and he varies true. up the way he promotes it as well. He's Different photos. exceptional at it though. He's very good at it, yeah. But that's a real skill. He got really good at it after we stopped working together, weirdly. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you guys didn't do badly in terms of sort of su- famousness and success from an outsider perspective, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's... The, <laughs> by the by. <laughs> there's, a, there's a kettle of worms. Fair enough. There. A hornet's a, nest. <laughs> a can of fish yeah. and whatever right there that, you know. Fair enough. Um, but, like, definitely, like, Self-promotion is one of the weirdest things we... I, it is new. Yeah. I think if you were... If this was 30 years ago, what was that? That's the 90s. Mm-hmm. So we didn't really have the internet then. You know, you... Generally, like... If this was 1990, you would make this book and then 
it's the publisher. Yeah, it, they it, would do all of that. They're the ones advertising. They're the ones getting you written about. They're the one. That's it. That's how. It's really we're the first generation that's really had this. I say first generation. We're the first era that's really had this drive that we have to self yeah well and an avenue to be able to do it i guess but that avenue not only to be able to self-promote but to actually do it like yeah. do the thing that gets yeah yeah it. yeah like, you wouldn't the bbc weren't going to pay you 30 years ago to make 20 minute programs about recreational drugs you know like we've yeah. got this opportunity the new media free to free media, whatever you want to call it to yeah, we can create make this. Thing. Yeah, every anyone, can, everyone can publish. Everyone can make music in their bedrooms. Mm. You know, that's what everyone said when I was a teenager. It's like, oh yeah, like the nineties is when everyone can make music in their bedrooms. Mm. And, you know, like White Town is always the first thing that pops into my head when I think about that. BBC Basic. You made yeah. that on a BBC Basic, and it's did. brilliant. It's um, very good. But yeah, like all of the stuff I. This is also weird because it's the first time I have had a publicist mm. working with me, to, well, doing loads to promote the book. And everything else I've ever done, like the podcast and everything, I mean, maybe Pip counts as a publicist, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. everything else, I've just just sort of shouted about it myself and, and asked other people to shout about it. And so this is also weird that it's taken some of that pressure off but added a different kind of pressure because suddenly it's like, oh my God, there's other people, other people's sort of have taken a risk on this as well. Whereas everything yeah. else I've done has just been me going, well, I'll see whether this works. Whereas this, like, I've been given a book deal to do it. <laughs> you know, a, some, a, a company has spent n- not a small amount of money to make this book happen uh-huh. and they're relying on it recouping or, you know, they're like, they believe in it so... I'm, it's not just me I'm letting down, I guess, is what I'm yeah. thinking. Not that I think I've let anyone down, I hope. <laughs> Definitely paranoid at the moment. I find it funny because like, I had a solo album with Sunday Best and then the Dan and Pip albums. And the Dan and Pip albums recouped. Mm-hmm. But my solo album's like well, well in the hole. Like, I don't know, 17 grand or something mm. still. And we need, we're coming up to 10 years after it came out. Uh, eight years. And it is really odd, but I like to just balance it out and just think, well, yeah, that might still be in the hole, but the this over here has more than made up for that. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. So you've just got to think, whoever well, the biggest writer on on your publisher is... Yeah, they're, they're making enough money for the rest of us. They're funding any shortfall <laughs> in your work. I mean, that is that is true, because that's how these kind of things work, mm. isn't it? They, yeah, Madonna funded some of the the greatest indie bands of all time yeah. just by being mega successful mega successful yeah yeah that's a very nice way to think about it and it's good that that is still happening mm. because that's how you get the interesting stuff it's mm. not going to sell a million copies but it is going to be doing something different and yeah. for people who don't want to read Madonna. Listen to Madonna. I've got my analogies mixed up, but yeah. Yeah, Madonna's science writing has really dropped. <laughs> I off. would read a hundred percent read Madonna's really, Madonna's really science writing off. book. <laughs> so, where? What's the book called? The book is a ri- very originally called "Say Why to Drugs." Okay, what's the podcast called? The podcast is also called "Say Why to Drugs." Wow. I didn't come up with Do that name. Do you not name. think that's going to get confused? Well. 
you're going to be trying to download the book. And I mean, you can download really... the book, so that's an extra oh, confusion. I mean, oh, download the, the audio book, and then you can be really confused. Oh wow! Yeah, the so audio book is pulled a nubbin off my earphones. Yeah, the o- the audio book is. I think there's quite a few people who listen to the podcast who are quite excited about the audio book because they're like, oh my god, it's going to be like a ten hour, really twelve long. hour podcast. Have you abridged it for the recording? No. Nope. All right, good. It's in good. full. Um, I don't like abridged. I feel like they've cut out something good. Yeah, the, the, it's difficult because there are lots of things like footnotes, so trying to work out where to put them in. And well, also in the book, there's lots of myths. Do you just and... do those in an accent? <laughs> I should have done. <laughs> well, what I tried to pitch was that it would be great, because Pip's written the foreword, so he's going to read mm. the foreword, which I think is going to be awesome. But I was saying, well, why don't we get him? Because like, lots of... Each chapter is made up of lots of question headings, and then yeah, and it would be great if he asked the questions, and they they thought it would be too disruptive, which I see as well. It would be quite jarring, maybe it would if every like often. with the footnotes. You yeah, can, let me just uh, interrupt yeah, yeah. you for a second. <laughs> the way Adam Buxton does with his fact-checking Santa. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, so I I've read the audio. Well, I'm actually going to finish it off tomorrow, but I've read mm-hmm. most of the audio book, and I'm going to read it all myself which is really fun. I went into a fun studio and uh, B- Bill Nye and Pete Perfidus were also in reading their books. Nice. Or I don't know whether Bill Nye was reading his book or someone or else's. somebody else's. But uh, yeah, it felt he very He wasn't glamorous. even being paid. He just turned up just... doing a bit of reading. <laughs> he can only read out loud. He can't read in his head. No, so, so he, he does, has to... He, he just, just might. Yeah. I might as well let you record it while I read this book. So. Yeah, so you know like Prince had a music video made of every song he ever wrote, which he did. And, and he wrote like a stupid amount of stuff. Yeah, like Kevin Smith directed videos, but like these are all locked in a vault somewhere. <gasps> well, Bill Nye does it. He <laughs> reads every book he's ever read, he's read out he loud just and has it. recorded. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes he'll go back, you know. But it's, Even when he just stops, he gets bored of a book halfway through, just in case. <laughs> just <laughs> you know, he got half of a recording that Dostoevsky's the idiot. Yeah. But and then he's he never went, got through it. Oh, it's all the Russian. Shame. It's really hard to keep track of all the Russian names. Yeah, it's hard to pronounce them. You have to keep. Yeah. I couldn't get. I really find it hard to read Dostoevsky, so I deliberately just changed their names to English names, huh? and it's fine. I you then can, can remember who that person. You is. can buy books where they reprint them for you, but with your name in it. So I've got a version of Wuthering Heights that my friend got me uh, with like my name and her name and other people's names in it instead well, of the characters. Put it in as Dr. Susie Gage. <laughs> Just the whole way the whole, through. The whole way through. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, doing an audiobook's weird. Um, mm. I like, had a really amazing um, editor who... So I think different companies who record audiobooks do it in different ways, but mm. they... If you stumble over a word or, you know, you miss something out or you pronounce something in a weird way, they edit it on the fly. Mm. So rather than then someone having to take a 12-hour file and chop out all the times where you went, oh, sorry, can I say that again? They do it as they go on. Yeah. So it's to begin with, it's incredibly weird because they keep stopping you and then replaying a bit of your voice and then the recording cuts out and you have to carry on. Mm-hmm. So you have to find your place on the text and scroll yeah. up on the iPad and blah, blah, blah. But once you get into the flow of it, it's really well. It it's re- it works really well, and yeah. It's, it's it's funny because you you might find it changes how you record your podcast intros and stuff. You might find that it's easier to edit yourself. Yeah, although I don't tend to record on a computer. Mm. I tend to record on a handheld device. Oh, I know. So, but what I mean is, uh, you start to realise how your 
pitch changes and stuff yeah. and how to give yourself the Flow. opportunity to... I think, know. though, I'm getting better at, at that anyway just from doing the podcast so long because I do I edit the podcast all myself as well yeah. at the beginning I had someone doing it for me like very kindly sort of volunteered after they heard the first one they went do you want someone to do some editing for you <laughs> I was like oh okay so because this is quite natural yeah I I do hesitation editing yeah so if I need say say uh, when we talked about bands I'm probably going to cut that down a little yeah that a little bit more succinct but what I'll do is instead of trying to uh, edit it in such a way that it's smooth and all that, I'll use an um or yeah. an um and make it appear like you... Just had just a thought and drifted off somewhere else and kind drifted of thing. off yeah. somewhere else. And I really like doing it because I can, I can make... I do make myself sound like I'm just completely skittish sometimes. <laughs> I'll, I'll be like talking about one thing and then just suddenly... Or I like to make the person interrupt me. <laughs> yeah. It's probably dishonest at this point. It makes them look bad. But every now and again, someone, it will sound like that person's just, I've started saying something and they've just plowed over me and like, but it works perfectly. But that is it's how conversations natural. work. Mm. Like people don't talk really neatly and then when they finish, the next person starts. Yeah. That's not how people talk. And you can tell when things have been edited like that because they sound unnatural. I hate it. Like with some podcasts, when it's they've just asked the question and they've got the next question, and it's just ah, oh, interesting. Mm. So, but the, and it's like, come on, yeah. were you actually listening? Yeah. You, Is it my turn to talk care? now? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. That I think we've got it. Got it done. <laughs> you plugged the book. Yeah. You plugged the podcast. Thank you. Anything else? Um. I mean, now I'll be doing lots of stuff, but I don't know when it is yet. Book festivals and things, but I don't think I can announce them yet. So you yeah. probably be at Hay. Not Hay yet, but other ones. I'm hoping Hay, but I think they're booking now and they haven't got in touch yet. They might though. They might. You never know. Some good ones. Glasgow, which is called I Rate, which is the best name for a book festival ever. <laughs> a book festival in Glasgow. Yeah. Yeah. Like wouldn't, wouldn't in, work anywhere else. In Surrey. It's yeah. Like, what? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I'm hanging up. Bye, listeners. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, did you enjoy that conversation? If so, smash that subscribe button and drop a scintillating five-star review. And don't forget, you can support this podcast directly by hopping over to patreon.com forward slash Dan Lazak. Enjoy! Well, 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 there we go. We're back. First one of the new year. What a goodie. Uh, super conversational. We just had a natter. I like the nattering. I'm going to try to do more nattering and less overthinking in the podcast. I know it's all meant to be very deep and meaningful, but some, I'm sorry, I'm fiddling, fiddling with the guitar pedal while I talk. and It's probably making a noise. Um... But yeah, no, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Susie's lovely. And the podcast is really good. Having taken uh, chemicals in my life, uh, allegedly, um, it's kind of interesting to me to hear what I've done to my body uh, in a non-judgmental manner. So yeah, allegedly. Not the judgmental. What the? Uh, yeah. No, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Um, next week... We not next week, the other one. In a fortnight, we're back with a internet person who plays video games on the internet and talks about video games and plays video games. Did I say play video games? Um, yes, Twitch, a Twitch streamer and YouTube content creator around the video games. Uh, so look forward to that. Um, uh, anything else? Anything else? Uh, uh, yeah, give me money on danasack.bandcamp.com and I will give you other things in return, i.e. music or merchandise. Uh, rate, comment and subscribe, obviously. That's the thing you're meant to do. Um, on anything. No, it doesn't even have to be my stuff. Just go somewhere, rate it, comment and subscribe to it and um i'll see you in like two weeks i'm actually going to record the intro to the one in two weeks like in hmm, maybe like five five minutes so it's going to be a bit weird i'm going to be pretending that we're in the future i probably i tell you what if you've listened this far i'm gonna say oh the response to last week's was amazing on faith i don't know how the response is going to be I'm recording this in, in, you know, the future. So, yeah. So, when I say that on the next one, know that I'm lying. And only you people who listen to the end, only you special few, know that I'm a big fat liar. Anyway, talk to you soon. Bye.